in the financial services industry it is not so much your ip or your technological edge but it is the ability to day after day year after year deliver consistent good quality service to your best customers yeah the focus is always on solving the problem as opposed to dumping or bringing in the most sophisticated method let's start by saying that typically when a large company an established firm uh, sets up a data science team right um the objective is not to solve a problem per se okay. the objective is to have a data science team hello and welcome to data shadow the podcast on all things data this podcast is a series of conversations with experts and industry leaders in data and each week we aim to unpack a different compartment of the data suitcase i am your host karthik shashidhar i am a blogger newspaper columnist book author and a former data and strategy consultant i currently head analytics and business intelligence for delivery one of india's largest logistics companies you can follow me on twitter at karthik s that is k a r t h i k s and read my blog at noenthuda.com that is n o e n t h u d a.com all opinions expressed in this podcast belong to me and my podcast guests and i do not reflect the views of any organizations we might be associated with nothing discussed in this podcast should be taken as financial or legal advice One of the first industries that started using data in a big way was financial services. Sometime in the 1970s, soon after the Black-Scholes model got developed, Wall Street started hiring PhDs in maths, physics and engineering in a large way in order to build models to price derivatives and help trade better. However, over the last 10 years, especially after the global financial crisis, It has appeared that Wall Street doesn't have the same pole position as it did in terms of the use of maths for making money. So how did this happen? Why is it that the financial services industry is not in the same pole position as it was in terms of use of maths? What has changed with the financial services industry and what are the incentives that are different here from Silicon Valley? In order to discuss all of this today, we have Hari Balaji Harib is a co-founder of Romulus, an award-winning unstructured data automation platform for for financial services firms. Prior to founding Romulus, Harib spent a decade in quant and data roles at Goldman Sachs in Hong Kong and Singapore. What is data science and what is artificial intelligence? How how do you uh, describe these two? Sure. So uh, let me start actually with the with the more contentious of the two terms, right? Which is basically uh, AI. Yeah. Now I think this is. Um, so I was actually listening to a podcast a couple of uh, weeks ago on um, on cryptography, right? Okay. Okay. And uh, so the interesting thing there was that the word crypto was being sort of uh, obviously used in the context of crypto, meaning cryptography. Yeah. And uh, but every time someone said crypto in my head it was actually cryptocurrency 
ரிலேட்டட் Uh, discussion around what is artificial intelligence and all the concepts around strong and weak ai and sort of you know what is really uh, intelligence uh, what has happened is that because of the overuse of this term it has now come into common parlance uh, to mean what we would probably call uh, weak ai okay right? uh, which means uh, you know let's actually sort of um, you know chunk down a couple of levels and uh, just start by talking about intelligence right yeah, yeah um, that's a good place so um you know i think there are many different definitions uh, to this and uh, in in my book it's basically in, at some level it's the ability to learn right and okay. it's the ability to learn not just uh, from instructions and i think that is that is probably one uh, type of learning and you can obviously have a discussion about you know is following instructions really learning or is it really sort of intelligence uh, but basically something a bit deeper where uh, you're able to take uh, past situations past experience and map that onto new situations and come up with some useful hypotheses or attempts to solve new problems right i think at a at a very sort of high level this is what uh yep. i would call intelligence right yep. and uh, if you're able to sort of demonstrate that uh, a machine is able to do this then you can call that artificial intelligence right yep. now i think this is really sort of the the core uh, uh sort of idea that differentiates let's say uh, you know uh, ai from something like bubble sort right yep. where you're able to sort of write a bunch of code uh which are basically an explicit set of instructions which can be followed without any understanding of the context or the underlying problem and still achieve the result and we want to sort of uh, differentiate so i think at the very basic level uh, in common parlance today when people say ai they mean something which is not this right yep. something which has some semblance of uh, being able to autonomously solve a problem based on experience rather than based on instructions right yep. i think that's really the sort of the the core idea now where that experience comes from is an open question uh, you can simulate that experience by uh, for example in the case of alpha go uh, a machine playing against itself right so it yes. you can argue that there's no real world experience here or you can sort of show let's say uh, a machine a thousand images of uh, a cat or a million images of a cat and a million images of a dog and and build a classifier Uh, which distinguishes between what a cat and a dog look like so the the but the basic thumb rule is that uh, you need to be creating some form of experience for the system to learn from as opposed to codifying uh, rules uh, and and sort of creating uh, if something is closer to bubble sort uh, than it is to sort of you know showing examples to distinguish between a cat and a dog then i think that is probably not ai right yep. but once again the term has become very murky because uh, we are sort of it's become sort of this lowest common denominator term because it's being bandied about so often and uh, which is i mean you, it can be a, i'm not i'm not sort of necessarily saying it's a bad thing uh, but essentially it is the meaning is now driven by what a large portion of the population understands this to mean 
right? As opposed to what, uh, you know, it can, the, the, the discussions around what AI is in the, uh, you know, in the halls of academia um, uh, and sort of all these uh, ideas around strong versus weak AI, I think these things are all sort of now sidelined and yeah. it's become this catch-all th term, which is, I mean, I, I'm not going to comment on whether that's a good or a bad thing, but that's what it is today. Now, data science, which is the other term you brought up, is perhaps a bit less contentious. Okay. And once again, I think in, in my book, the way I think about data science is uh, it's basically the ability of... Uh, ability of someone to build uh, a mathematical model that can interpret real world data, right? Okay. Now, um, is that definition very close to statistics? Perhaps. I don't have a better answer other than possibly data science refers to, uh, you know, performing this activity in a practical situation as opposed to in a more theoretical situation. Right. Yeah. And I think that also brings to data science somewhat of an artisanal quality, okay. wherein, yeah. uh, you know, in that uh, you need to have the more you do it, uh, probably the more intuition you develop around it and the better you get. Yes. And also uh, there are uh, many, many instances where, uh, you know, there is no one answer. Right. And uh, I think that's what um, makes uh I think that's what gives uh, uh, data science its artisanal quality in that, you know, every person I have met who professes to be a data scientist has their own favorite approach or their own favorite model or their own internal mental sort of prioritization of what they would like to try first, uh, yeah. given a problem. So I think that's what makes it very interesting and different. Um, and uh, yeah, so I think that's, that's probably how I would, uh, you know, let's say, summarize data science. Okay, thanks. I mean, uh, so while you were describing data science, I got reminded of some old jokes, which was like data science is statistics done on a Mac or data science right. is uh, statistics done in California or uh, a data scientist knows more uh, statistics than a software engineer and more software engineering than a statistician and so on. This is a whole bunch of jokes that had come out back in 2013, 14, I think when data science was just uh, taking right. off. But yeah, I think I like your uh, I like your answer, which uh, says that like I mean that it is like more of a artisanal quality that each person has their own pet methods of approaching a problem and things like that. I I think I completely I sort of uh, subscribe to that as well. So now uh, now that we talk about so what do you what what do you do whatever uh, we discussed AI we discussed data science do you uh, put yourself in any of you uh, both you and your firm do you put yourself in any of these buckets or like how do you describe the um, uh, right. what you do. Sure. So let me, um, I, I think, I think that would sort of, uh, uh, I think it requires a lot of background, uh, but, yeah. but basically at a very high level, right? Uh, so we are basically, I would, I, I'd, I'd, um, so if I had to summarize what we do, we are a software firm that's building software products for financial services at, a, at the highest level. Yes. Right. And um, I do not want to bring in words like AI and data science into the picture because I think those are, let's say, tools or those are expressions of what we do as opposed to defining qualities of our firm, right? Okay. We exist. Uh, I mean, so the, the company that I, I founded in 2017 and now run is called Egregore Labs. Uh, and we build a, a, a wide range of uh, software products. And I think the core idea really is to uh, solve 
a set of financial services problems uh, which we think merit solving and which are probably we think uh, you know not so um, sexy or hot but at the same time uh, are incredibly valuable to solve right okay. and i think that has sort of been uh, let's say the driving force or the principle behind uh, what we have tried to build and what we have what we continue building within the company um so that's at a very sort of high level that's i would say that's what we do now we do end up using elements of uh, you know natural language processing uh, some machine learning and deep learning within the company as well as uh, you know a lot of traditional programming and traditional software building uh, so all of that comes together but i think we are uh, where i think uh, what we have learned the hard way uh, uh, and when i say we i mean uh, me as a founder is that uh, the focus is always on solving the problem as opposed to dumping or bringing in the most sophisticated method right yep, yep. so we are not ashamed or we are humble enough to admit that there are situations where a regex will do and yep. complex lp is not required and we are quite happy and humble to sort of take that approach okay right um and i think that's that's really sort of been the big learning from the last uh, couple of years for me which is that the problem comes first and the method is really whatever solves the problem the best uh, yep. and you must have a swiss army knife mentality where you're willing to learn pick up things as required to solve the problem in the most you know economical per, uh, complete uh you know customer satisfying fashion uh as opposed to sort of you know uh, approach the problem in a more of a screwdriver or a hammer and nail fashion where yep uh, you have this particular tool you're excited about and now you are going around applying it to every context i agree with a lot of it i mean i strongly believe that you need this user me knife or a toolbox kind of an approach rather than a um hammer and nail uh, kind of an approach uh, which again uh, so what do you uh, uh, and i i completely subscribe to that so but uh, how do your uh, let's say your customers take it how do your uh, um, uh, sort of uh, uh, competitors take it and so on like uh, what is their how do they approach the problem in the financial industry what is it like now in terms of like uh, use of uh, use of data if i were to call it that in, in terms of solving the non sexy problems that you uh, that you mentioned right so i think uh, right so to answer that question i think we kind of need to sort of uh, spend some time uh, going down the the roads of history a little bit right right um so if you sort of looked at what uh, you know uh, let's say where let's call it interesting math for the lack of a better word yep. uh, was being applied in the financial services industry for for let's say from the 80s or probably earlier so from yep. then to let's say uh, you know the first decade of the 2000s um i think it was largely around being able to model asset prices better right yep. uh, and and so when we say asset prices here we mean you know things that are real uh which could be uh let's say uh the price of an insurance policy which is which has got somewhat of a tangible nature to it to something that's a derivative uh to something that's a derivative or derivative and so on so there is basically a you know world of underlying assets and uh 
then there are derivatives piled onto that and sort of add infinite, right? There are sort of, uh, uh, as they say, tortoises all the way down. Yep. In, in many ways, I think this is also, uh, interestingly enough, I think somewhat of a zero-sum game, right? Where there's a very competitive nature of this particular, uh, to this particular industry, which is, uh, you know, uh, and remember that uh, when we are talking about asset prices and we are talking about derivatives, uh, we are not talking about what we would call the primary markets as such, yes. right? So, yes. you know, we're not talking about pricing a stock into IPO. Uh, which would what would fall very neatly into sort of the uh, investment banking origination m a world so all of that uh, i'm kind of removing from this conversation because uh, you know i think uh, so we're talking really about secondary markets and there is a bit of a competitive nature to it because uh, uh, you know you are competing with every other bank on the street in order to be able to sort of um, price an asset better or more accurately or trade an asset better. And yep. therefore, there is a certain, uh, you know, Darwinian nature uh, to this, uh, what would what we could call a zero-sum game, right? Because there is only yep. so much money to be made in the market through trading. And you have all these competing uh, players. And um, the interesting nature of this problem uh, is that, uh, you know, and someone... Uh, I met very early in the journey, uh, in in my journey in the in the financial services industry, uh, said that the the one of the things that makes the financial services industry very interesting is the proximity to money, right? Where, yes. um, you know, if you um, if you make, let's say, a hundred dollars trading today, right? Uh, you know, there is some um, slippage to let's say, you know, some brokerage house, some commissions. There's possibly some taxes to be paid. Uh, if you're if you're working uh, within a large firm, then you know there is some element where the firm takes some of that away. But yep. essentially, there is a very sort of simple, straightforward equation to how much of that lands in your pocket, right? Yep. There is no there's no complexity in terms of how do you tra the translation of your skill or effort or your result into a financial gain for you is very linear. In many ways, right? Um, and there is no marketing element. Uh, there is no sort of, uh, let's say, there's no fuzziness. And that attracts a lot of people to the industry because, uh, you know, very quickly, uh, you can sort of make a lot of money uh, simply by performing, by, by having one skill where you're very good at or like a set of skills which you're very good at. And um, you have very tangible results to show. Uh, and therefore, uh, you know, um, uh, argue that you should basically be rewarded in a certain fashion. So in, in many ways, I think it, it's a sort of very short distance between result and uh, and sort of personal outcome for you. And the other thing which makes the uh, industry very interesting, at least like, you know, uh, from the 70s into the Greenspan years, is that, um, you know, we were, uh, we were in, a, in a world where um, I would say uh, possibly cost of capital uh, was sort of going up at least through the green spaniards or was expected to go up and uh, uh, basically how much you could get paid for an incremental amount of risk was quite huge right and that manifested itself in various ways starting from you know what is the rate differential or what is the sort of the difference in yield between an emerging market and a developed market asset right quite yep. quite massive right and of that course. led to a whole host of things like carry trades and generally market volatility was also very high. And you could say that we were going through a period where there was a lot of action. Uh, there was a lot of willingness to participate that created liquidity. 
yep. markets were interesting and broadly there was money to be made from financial engineering right and um, you know we sort of got into this arms race for uh, yield especially in the private wealth and fixed income world and uh, also you know you had gone through this very interesting phase in the early uh, late 90s early 2000s where uh, there was uh, a, there was sort of this one opportunity when uh, you know the uh, the equity markets specifically uh, let's say the the tech world yep. had this had this sort of uh, ability to suck away all this liquidity um uh into sort of tech investments and for whatever reason that had not really sort of panned out the way people expected and the tech bubble had burst right so there was sort of a uh, let's redeploy capital into other assets uh let's sort of find and there was sort of an i think fixed income was very interesting at that point for, for some reason which is that you know people wanted safety people wanted guaranteed returns so for for a bunch of various different reasons uh essentially you kind of ended up in this interesting decade where uh, there was a progressive complexification of financial products yes. uh, and people were quite happy sort of uh, you know buying trading complexity for yield they were willing to sort of purchase things that they didn't completely understand because they were yielding a better uh, uh, giving them better income yes. and um, so sort of the world was going in one direction right you had sort of a series of rate hikes things seemed very predictable housing market was booming and uh, you know frankly regulation was not that intense right yep. and so you had everyone uh, sort of a very sort of large intense population of folks who are let's say broadly good at math uh, kind of accumulate in this one industry and yep. uh, sort of you know compete with each other find excitement happiness in sort of building more and more complex models and coming up with new products and sort of essentially the the going was good right uh, and then we had of course the gfc and you can sort of obviously argue and i don't think too many people will disagree with you that in some ways it was it was precipitated by um, you know uh, these complex products and yep. uh, um and sort of let's say uh, the way they behaved and the way they influenced the underlying assets uh, in in sort of a market where uh, uh, conditions were quite different from what they had been before uh, you know gfc commenced yep. and uh, you know people sort of had to sort of then agree and eat humble pie and uh, agree that they had mispriced assets and not really modeled things correctly and uh, gotten too caught up in the math and then a whole bunch of things happened right which is that um, you know the first thing that happened was that uh, you had in the short run uh, you had uh, basically this flight away from risk and complexity where people were yes. unwilling to touch things that were complex which they didn't understand and they sort of went in the opposite direction uh, the second thing was that the financial regulators came in and uh, said you know what like you know we need you to make sure that uh we don't have to bail you out again and you need to sort of uh show your be more prudential in the way you manage risk and the kind of products you sell and um, you know a lot of the caveat emptor approach where you know the person who's buying knows what they are buying and it's all their risk if it goes south that approach to sort of selling of financial products kind of went away to some extent yes. and progressively we sort of ended up in a world and obviously then you know rates came down uh, and that led to sort of a completely different approach where uh, you know it was very clear that we were going to be sort of you know we had 
multiple, multiple rounds of QE and uh, differentials in rates between EM and DM go down and a lot of, let's call it uh, macro factors, yep. slowly made this industry progressively less interesting, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. uh, for I, a number yeah. of reasons. The most interesting aspect of that was that we sort of moved away from financial engineering to what we'd call, you know, rattle-based engineering, regulatory accounting, tax and legal, right? Okay. Okay. So how do we sort of create products that, uh, you know, and, 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 and sort of do business that falls squarely and cleanly within the boundary conditions created by regulations, accounting, tax and legal, right? Yep. And all four were sort of, you know, um, Think, rethinking how uh, uh, the lens from which they were viewing financial products in the financial industry as a whole. Now, these I would say are all the, let's call it the headwinds in some ways, right? Yep. And uh, now let's talk about the tailwinds, which sort of led to a drift away, right? And, um, and sort of created new and interesting things for the financial industry to look at. So I think the first thing uh, I would say there is really uh, at some high level digital transformation. Right. Yep. Where uh, you had a number of uh, industries, companies, etc., move in the direction of uh, recording and measuring things and putting them inside, um, you know, a database, yep. which they were not doing before. Right. Yep. Uh, so people were getting more data centric broadly. Yep. I think this was one sort of let's say market wide phenomenon. Uh, the second thing that happened was, I would say, the revival of Silicon Valley in some, in some way, where yep. uh, you know you had you know the uh, uh, the rise and rise of Fang plus yep. plus, uh, the creation of interesting uh, you know jobs, roles, uh, ideas, things to work on for people who were. Uh, let's say math oriented or computer science oriented and coming out of colleges and universities in the U S and elsewhere. Yep. Um, I think that created a, a second change. Um, and then, you know, the um, suddenly you sort of ended up in this world very quickly where capital was broadly accessible to everyone. Right. Yes. So it no longer became, and I think we're seeing that today where, uh, you know, it's not capital access to capital is, it might be a differentiator for a startup, but for a large company, it's no longer a differentiator. Right. Yep. Yep. And the things that you needed to do, the stories you needed to be able to tell and how you convince investors to give you capital changed. Right. Um, you know, therefore, uh, a couple of changes started to happen. Uh, first of all, you know, people started looking at equities, I think, far more closely than they did uh, before GFC. Yep. And focus became, especially in tech and healthcare, to sort of find assets uh, which truly had an edge, right? Yep. And now if you have to measure uh, loyalty, for example, a great way to do that uh, is reviews, right? Yep. So if you have, uh, you know, um, a product that is directly being sold to a customer. And at the same time, you have, you know, Facebook, uh, Instagram, Twitter, and all of these widely available, as well as a number of forums that existed even before of hardcore aficionados. Um, their response and reaction to a new product launch became very important. You know, a hundred other of these data sources, I mean, ranging from, you know, satellite images, parking lot, pictures of parking lots, infrared cameras, yeah. A whole sort of flurry of 
information which you would call all data right yes, yes. and which basically uh, then start to become uh, interesting sources of information right and for the first time you know post your you know the advent of big data and uh, you know certain let's call it breakthroughs in uh, the area of uh, nlp broadly right and everything associated with neural networks all of a sudden if you had data and you could throw it at a neural network um, you had the potential to basically make some sense of it yep right yep uh, and you know things that were not interesting since the 70s and which were academic ideas suddenly became reality in 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 the current in the last decade right yep. and so you had you know uh, you had compute you had um, the let's call it the data. technology you had data and most importantly i would say that a lot of the breakthroughs and ideas were in the <clears throat> free and open source uh, software community then i think um typically um wall street is never sort of a good first mover but a great uh, you know follower yeah, yeah. right so so i think you had um, many of these trends becoming uh, mainstream and interesting and you know uh, frankly i would say the the how useful is all this data and like you know has all data really taken over and have people made money of it and has it been sort of has the uh, utility of this been proven uh, i would say it's quite hard to say okay. um, obviously the very systematic and you know long standing players in this market like you know like the medallion fund yep. have consistently shown themselves to be all weather winners um, yep. right if i can use that term Uh, but has is the average fund really been able to has the average fund really been able to extract alpha from uh, these data feeds it's unclear to me and from the all data perspective and the all data universe um i do think that if you sort of look at the curve right and uh, one possible <clears throat> you know example of this of of a company that has lived through this entire um cycle would be quandl right yep yep uh, which sort of uh, you know was birthed uh, i would say at the advent of when all data was was still sort of um, you know let's call it a niche idea yeah uh, found a way to create a marketplace uh, saw phenomenal growth yeah uh, was sold to nasdaq and now uh, just this week or last week the founders have spent the time as at nasdaq and are have left to sort of you know take on other uh, do other things yep. so i would say that you know in some ways it's it's the end of an era right and um, you know uh, um i would be lying if i said quandl was not one of the things that inspired me to get into this because it was okay. such an interesting idea and uh, frankly it did seem like uh, you know something that would <clears throat> be phenomenal and explosive and it was um but now that we are sort of you know a couple of years in uh, i i i'm i would say that while it's it's at the end of the day this is a zero sum game right so there are people yeah. who have learned uh uh you know through through this red queen race of you know finding better faster uh uh better quality data and analyzing it better there have emerged some winners uh but the majority are losers and there's no yep. two ways about it and uh you know and so i think that's kind of it's gotten it's gotten to a point where people understand the market and there's a steady state to the world of all data and yep. uh you know and 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 sort of uh, that's where it is okay 
Okay, now you bring me to another question. So uh, while talking about AI now, you were talking about like, you mentioned this quote that uh, rules plus data is like whatever, software engineering, but uh, uh, discerning the rules based on data and outcomes, that's AI. Now, so now let me ask you, what, what is the difference between AI and ML? This is again something that uh, a lot of people right. conflate. So, and so, like, so, so frankly, in today's day and age, uh, it's like asking what's the difference between, let's say, crypto and, you know, cryptocurrency, right? Okay. Yeah. Uh, to go back to the analogy. So, frankly, they're being used interchangeably today. And, uh, you know, I can sort of come up, try and come up with a definition that, uh, you know, some Venn diagram which says, okay, you know, these are all the things that belong in the world of machine learning, but not AI. Yep. But frankly, I think this is a, this is not a very useful discussion to have beyond a point. And we have gotten to a place where, a lot of these words are being used so uh, interchangeably yep. that while they may have had distinct meanings five years ago, they no longer do so. Okay. Right. So uh, it it will be it will be sort of you know let's say a very theoretical argument at this point in time to try and create a distinction between these words. So you say it's pretty much. Uh, it's your interpretation. It doesn't yeah. really matter what is uh, what. Yeah, is I mean, you can you can you can look up Wikipedia and you'll get some very distinct, some somewhat distinct definitions. But frankly, people are using these words so interchangeably today yeah. uh, that it doesn't it doesn't matter, right? Like so, for instance, you know, the, it brings back that idea that you know, if it's in uh, Python, it's machine learning. If it's in PowerPoint, it's AI. Yeah. Stuff like that, right? So we yeah. are in that world today. Yeah. Right. So um, yeah. Okay, uh, so I, I again want to bring you back to another thing that you had mentioned offhand in the middle and then like we sort of, uh, uh, so you mentioned about how, uh, uh, for example, that your company and you philosophically look at uh, sort of uh, data science as a sort of a toolbox kind of a thing where we, uh, right. where you, uh, so uh, how, how is it generally in finance nowadays? As in like, I know that all, all big banks now uh, have massive data science teams. They, they, they employ lots of uh, machine learning people and things like that. Is it, is, is it generally, but one thing I've noticed in the industry is that like, especially among people who call themselves data scientists, uh, is that like, they tend to be more of the uh, hammer kind of people rather than the toolbox kind of people. But what is it, what do you notice in your industry as in like, how is it, um, is it like, if you oh. look at your competition clients and so on? Sure. So um, let's start by saying that Typically, when a large company, an established firm, uh, sets up a data science team, right? Um, the objective is not to solve a problem per se. Okay. The objective is to have a data science team. Fair right? enough. Yeah. Uh, uh, and you could say the same thing for you know. Typically, um, uh, I mean, you could you could extend the same logic to like you know, if 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 a, if a large established company is setting up a Bitcoin trading desk. Yep. Then the objective is not to make money. It is to set up a Bitcoin trading desk. Yep. Right. Uh, it is to service some customer need or some customer ask saying, Hey, do you provide me Bitcoin services? Is that something that you do? And you want to be able to say yes. Yep. Right. Uh, and likewise, I think, um, so, so in many, in many cases, I think at least when, look, I have, I'm not sort of in the, I've not been on the, in the sell side for about, you know, close to four years now. Yeah. So all my opinions need to be sort of, uh, you know, treated with a big spoonful of salt, if not a pinch of salt. Right. Yeah. Uh, but 
I think now we are at a place where um, there are dedicated data science teams, perhaps working on problems of interest. It could range any. I mean, I think the one of the core problems of interest for all uh, firms, uh, irrespective of financial services or not, is are they doing a good job of resourcing their customers with the right salespeople, with the right um, let's call it research with the right resources. And this is something that uh, I would say is an interesting scale data science problem, which I'm sure most financial services firms are already working on. Yep. For instance, let's say, you know, I have um, a customer, I know uh, who their sales coverage is. I know the kind of questions they ask me all the time. I know the kind of trades they've done over the last 10 years. I have a general area of uh, I have a general knowledge, understanding of what their areas of interest are. And today, let's say they're a customer who I make $2 million a year from. Now, uh, an interesting data science problem could be, what are the five things that we could do? Or let's say we have these limited set of resources. How do we allocate them? It could be you know time that my research person spends with this customer. It could be, you know, I have built this IP or this toolkit or this toolbox, which helps understand X. I have this webinar, which has, which I can only give out 50 exclusive seats. Yep. Right. Whom should, who should be given the right to sit in this webinar? Yep. These are all, I would say, optimization of effort of resources um, to maximize revenue, uh, that you get from your customers. I think this is a fairly universal problem. It's a fair, it's a problem that is broad, large, wide enough and has a sufficient impact um, on bottom line. That is something that I'm sure every data science team is. Uh, every bank has a data science team of some sort or someone with data science skills working on this problem. Yep, yep. Now let's drill down massively, right? Like, uh, for example, we had, let's say, um, a, a model uh, which let's say was used for option pricing. Okay. Right. Yep. And, uh, you know, and at, at this point we've moved, you know, five, six generations down from, let's say a black Scholes model. Right. Yep. Um, so you've got, let's say a two factor model. You've got some saber, you've got a bunch of other, uh, ideas in there. And now the question is that, you know, Hey, can we sort of throw away these models and we have enough, uh, you know, data out there of underlying parameters and of uh, uh, you know option prices yep. in the market that can we replace this with a machine learning model or yep. with, if forget machine learning at least like a statistical model of some Fair sort yeah right so i'm sure this work is already also being undertaken i'm sure that this is also something that most people are have done something about um, at uh, you know it may have worked in some situations and may not have worked in certain other situations, but this is probably something that also people have uh, worked on. So these are all probably instances where, uh, you know, uh, let's say there is a, uh, a data science team or someone with dedicated uh, data science background thinking about these problems or working on them. Yep. Now, the bigger change i would say and if you've sort of you know been on linkedin and looked up your goldman colleagues who are still at goldman uh, you will notice that uh, data science or let's say machine learning has become mainstream most people yep. have done 
some coursera course or some have fiddled or have played around or are weekend let's say machine learning folks right yep yep uh, and so that i think is the more significant change where uh, people are they have a sufficient amount of familiarity with this toolkit that they are able to incorporate it into their everyday sort of work and there is a strong interest need um uh, i would say um you know compulsion almost uh to sort of get up to speed with yep. these kind of ideas and to find situations uh, at work where these can be applied and that's where leads to the sort of the hammer problem that you spoke about yep. where let's say that someone's day job does not really require them to apply machine learning but they are still sort of saying you know what i i've learned about this new thing i've got some awareness and familiarity with it uh you know can i find a way to demonstrate that i know this as well at yeah. work yeah right and um i'll sort of close all this by saying something else which is um going back to what we spoke about what i mentioned earlier which is that wall street or the financial services industry as such uh the established players are not first movers they are good second movers yeah right or good followers fast followers i suppose is the word um so when something becomes established uh you will see that they are sort of very quick in adopting that and that also means that you know the the pace at which things are getting adopted moving changing within large firms is relatively glacial versus what you would see inside let's say the startup world or yep. the tech world in general right um i mean the last 5 years have been like i mean the, the the rate of change in terms of the ability of what neural networks can deliver has been like nothing short of phenomenal i mean Absolutely. if i were if i were a theist i would use the word miraculous yeah right? yeah and uh, but this is not something that let's say you could have ever come about within a large established player uh, tinkering by themselves with this kind of technology right uh, i think the fact that a lot of these changes were happening in the uh, open source community and where code or ideas were openly being exchanged uh, by means of papers on archive or you know simply code available on github yep. i think has been is not i mean i think that's been sort of one of the core contributors to where um you know where we are today um and i think that is something which is very hard to recreate within a particular industry which sort of you know values highly uh, and is secretive about their models or their yeah. uh, you know ideas right and frankly out of necessity right yeah of course and i think that is the that is the challenge here yeah. right so uh, just to summarize um, the very likely that every large firm out there has a data science team who's working on some firm wide problems very likely that every individual quant team is applying is kind of self taught in data science and applying some ideas and thirdly you know if you look across these two teams um, the rate of change is perhaps or the the amount of let's say new ideas and uh, forget new ideas new development that's happening is probably not at the same pace that we are seeing uh, elsewhere 
yeah. right? Uh, because it is it is that kind of environment uh, where uh, which sort of encourages being a very good follower as opposed to a first mover. Is so that to a- be clear, right? I think that yeah, yeah. I mean, I think just to explain the the last bit, it's a feature and not a bug. Yeah. Right. Because um, I think the tech world operates very differently, has a very different appetite for risk, has a very different appetite for, uh, you know, they're, they're sort of their North Star, if you will, in terms of what should and shouldn't be done is quite different from the way the financial industry operates. Yeah. Right. Uh, we're in a world where, you know, it's it's not a shoot first, ask questions later world. You have uh, regulators all over the place. Um, yeah. You have reputational risk. Your typical customer is someone, uh, you know, who's looking to conserve uh, wealth first before creating wealth. Yeah. Right. Don't lose my money. That's the first rule. Right. Uh, so it's a very different uh, industry with a very different sort of value system. And therefore, I think that is what sort of, uh, you know, creates this very cautious approach towards uh, risk-taking of all forms. Yep. I mean, be it, um, uh, be it financial risk-taking, but also technolo- technological risk, right? In terms of, you know, adopting a new system or, uh, you know, migrating to a new uh, framework, all of these things have to be done very prudently. Okay. And uh, so, uh, and uh, if they don't uh, sort of uh, one way in which I think a lot of firms, let's say firms like Google, Cisco uh, probably have grown is that like, they may not innovate so much internally, but as soon as they see somebody outside who's innovating, they quickly go uh, gobble them up. Right. So do, do large financial firms also like, have they also got a reputation for hiring or is it just a sort of a, um, still uh, the, the, they try to replicate it rather than sort of like... Right. So I would say that to answer this question, we have to go back to what is the core asset in this business that generates value. For a Google or a Facebook or anyone else, that core asset is typically, you can argue brand and so on, but it's IP. Yep. Right? Yep. It's basically being able to do something quicker, faster, better than someone else, being first to market, uh, capturing the customer before with a better experience before anyone else can. Yep. Okay? In the financial services industry, it is not so much your IP or your technological edge, but it is the ability to day after day, year after year, deliver consistent, good quality service to your best customers. Yeah. Right. Yeah. To be able to sort of, it is, it is basically, you know, being reliable. That's a big, being sort of, uh, trust is a big, big element of the traditional banking industry and sort of is something that, um, you know, also um, is something that's a value that, that exists even today with the financial services industry. And it's, and, and now that's something which is very difficult to earn and very easy to lose. Um, Therefore, while your customers might be asking you questions like, you know, uh, hey, if I want to trade Bitcoin, can I do that with you? They're not asking you, are you sort of using the most latest, most sophisticated, you know, machine learning uh, tech? And more than your customers, that's not what the shareholders are looking for. The shareholders are looking for you to beat earnings estimates. The shareholders are looking for you not to get fined, yeah. not to get sued. Uh, 
they are not looking for you to have the latest and the greatest ip yeah uh, therefore the expectations from a wall street firm are vastly different from the expectations that are on the shoulders of a valley company Thank you for listening to Data Shatter. If you like this show, please leave a comment, share and subscribe to the podcast. You can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever else you go to get your podcasts. Once again, this is Karthik signing off. Thank you.